All right, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Servants and Stewards. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians 4. I'm going to read through the text before we break it down. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. Paul writes, Let a man regard us, 1 Corinthians 4, 1, in this manner, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Now these things, verse 6, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior... What do you have that you did not receive? If you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we might also reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to to angels and to men." We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty, are poorly clothed, and are roughly treated, and are homeless. And we toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. I do not write these things, to, these things to shame you, but to admonish you as beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Father, as we think about the Apostle Paul's words to a church in the first century, a church very much rooted in a society like that of Corona or really any American city, but especially a city that had so much going on, so much prosperity, so many different ideologies, so many different schools of thought. And the Corinthian congregation had really embraced the world and brought the world into the church rather than bringing the church into the world. And they were paying the price. Partisanship and factions, division around personality began to flood into the church and the church had become really carnal. And Lord, that's the danger that really the modern church faces is we become so enamored with the world, the culture, that we lose the one foundation that cannot be changed. The one foundation that is fixed, which is Jesus Christ, that foundation's been laid and there's no other foundation that could be laid 
except the one which is laid, which is Jesus. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Help us as your bride, your church, never to forget that you are the only foundation that we can build on. Help us to build wisely, as we talked about last week, to, to build with the right materials and to look forward to a time when we will be before you in that Bema seat judgment when we will be rewarded for faithfulness, for fidelity, for good stewardship to the things of God. Help us to remember that ultimately you're the one that we want to please, not man. And help us, Father, to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that what we do for the Lord is never in vain. May you bless as we study your word now. May you lead us by your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Well, the Corinthian congregation was definitely filled with partisanship, and they were really trying to build on other foundations other than Christ. Whether they would admit it or not in an interview, they were doing just that. They were trying to build on people instead of building on Christ. The longer I live, the more I can see the feebleness of people. <laughs> and I can see that we all have feet of clay, including yours truly. The moment that we think we've arrived and we've become strong, we can be surprised how weak we can be. How easy it is to vacillate between walking in the Spirit and walking in the flesh. If you try to make people your foundation, you will be in deep trouble because people are fickle. People mean well. We all mean well. Those of us who've been walking with the Lord for some time, we all mean well, but we know how in, unstable we can be. Instability seems to be a very human trait. And so there's only one foundation that can be laid, and it's the one that's been laid, and his name is Jesus, and he is the only one who can bring you all the way to the finish line. He's the only one who can bring you true stability in whatever season of life you find yourself. And that's what Paul said in the last chapter. Paul said, not only is Jesus the only true foundation, but there's going to be a day when you stand before this Jesus as a Christian. And that test or that beam of seat judgment will not be about your sin. Your sin was paid for in full at the cross. Praise God, we are saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's the gift of God. It is not by works, lest anybody should boast. So that day, that bema seat judgment is not going to be about boasting. It's not going to be about your sin. It's going to be about what you did with what you were given once you became a Christian. It's going to be about your good works that God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. He's prepared them, but he also gives you free will to walk in them. And the question that we have to wrestle with as Christian is, what am I, Christians is, what am I doing with my time, talent, and treasure? What am I supposed to be doing as a servant of Christ? How should I see myself? Are we seeing things the way we're supposed to? Well, the Corinthian church wasn't, and so Paul, in trying to correct them in love, and we need to keep in mind verse 14 when he says he's not trying to shame them, but to admonish them as beloved children. Sometimes I think we hear some of the teaching in, in Corinthians and other passages, and we think that, well, you know, 
Maybe Paul is just trying to beat the sheep, and we've probably all experienced preaching like that before, where we come in every Sunday and we feel like we just get beat up. And maybe the thought comes to your mind, I get beat up all week at work, I get beat up on the freeways, I get beat up in this area, that, and then I come to church and poof, 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 a little bit more. That's not the idea here. But the idea here is admonishment or encouragement or exhortation so that we might take a good look at our, our lives, our trajectory, if you will, and align it to Christ. That's the way we can live well. Jesus said, I've come to give you life, and that more abundantly. He wants to give you an abundant life. And so Paul says, you need to regard us in this manner, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. That's 1 Corinthians 4.1. This is how you need to look at us. Not that you're building on people. We are simply, see the first word, servants. Now, typically, the word servant is diakonos in Greek, and it's where we get the word deacon. And that's a very common rendering from the Greek to the English is into, uh, from diakonos to the idea of servanthood. And we all understand kind of the deacon role, but that's not the word here. The word here is a different Greek word. It's hupe reites. And it literally means an under rower. So each week my wife, who does all the graphics for the church, she asks me, where are you going with the sermon and what's a good image to capture where the sermon's going? And it's, this is the word for servant in 1 Corinthians 4.1. It's an under rower. Now for those of you who saw the movie Ben-Hur, you will know what an under rower is. How many of you have seen the movie Ben-Hur? Okay, so they had these Roman galley ships and if you were a slave to Rome they would sometimes put you in these ships and you would be beneath, in the hole, if you will, unseen, and you would be rowing for the Roman army. And so you could only see the paddles that went into the water. These slaves would be underneath in the galley of the ship, I think is what it would be called. And you would be rowing and rowing, and sometimes you'd have to row into battle, and you would have to actually ram other ships and that kind of thing. And so when Paul says, I want you to see us properly, he says, this is what I am. I'm an under rower. (laughs) Now imagine, you're the Apostle Paul. You write two-thirds of the New Testament letters, and you define yourself as what? An under rower? A slave, a servant of Christ? But that's what Paul said he was. He said, essentially, I want to be hidden. I want to just push the ship along in the water. For the sake of my master who's leading the vessel. I'm going into battle. I'm going into hard times. Look, the under rower's job. Some of you who watch Ben-Hur, you know the agony that these guys went. And how hard they pushed them as that one guy would hit the drum. And they had to keep up with the beat of the drum. That's how Paul sees his life, at least at this moment. Is I am simply an under rower. Now, how far is that removed from the modern Western concept of Christianity? Think about it. How many people see themselves as someone who simply would enter into the vessel and do their part to push it along? No, there's a lot of modern Christianity that simply critiques how the vessel moves, but not willing to go down below and get involved in the battle, just to be blunt. And so Paul says, this is what we are. We are under rowers of Christ, 
And secondly, and these are two S's, good way to guide the sermon here, servants of Christ and stewards, second uh, S in the verse 1, of the mysteries of God. We are servants and we are stewards. Now I think most of you who have been around for a while know what a steward is. A steward would run a large estate in the ancient world for his master. And so the master would be largely removed from the daily operation, but the steward would represent the master to the household. And he would take care of the other servants, he would attend to the finances, he would basically run everything in the stead of the master. Joseph is a good Old Testament example. In Potiphar's house, he was a steward. And he said to Potiphar's wife, the only thing my master hasn't given to me is you. You are his wife, and I will not touch you because I'm not going to sin against God. I've been entrusted with this honor, and I want to honor my master and serve him well. You, my friend, are a servant and a steward of many things in your life. You're a steward of your relationships. You're a steward of your ministry. You're a steward of your spiritual gifts. You're a steward of your finances. And the Bema Seat Judgment, please hear what I'm going to say. The Bema Seat Judgment is going to be all about how you served and stewarded the things of God. That's what it's going to be about. That's what's going to go through the fire is what I gave you, were you faithful with those things? The talents I gave you, Matthew 25, did you bury it in the ground or did you put my money into the bank or did you invest it so that there could be more? And again, we need to remember that the main idea here is not quantity but quality. We have a stewardship. The stewardship is the mysteries of God. Jesus said to the uh, apostles that he was sharing them, with them the things that many would not see. He said, blessed are your eyes because you see and your ears because you hear. And then he spoke about the parable of the sower. He says, it's been entrusted to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But to others, it's not been granted. You can check Matthew 13, verse 11. It's been granted to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Look, before I became a Christian, spiritual things were pretty much a mystery to me. <laughs> How about you? I didn't know God. I knew things about God, but I didn't know God. I didn't have a relationship with God. And there are many things in the spirit, spiritual world or the things of the Spirit that I could pontificate about only because I heard ideas from other people or my friends. But did I really know what God said about the mysteries? And the mysteries here is not some whodunit movie. It's more about things once concealed, now revealed in Christ. In this case, for those who have been entrusted with these mysteries, verse 2 it is required, moreover, it is required, it's not a suggestion, it's a requirement of stewards, one who manages another's goods, estate, etc. The one requirement of a steward is that they be found what? Faithful or trustworthy. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good. And what the Lord requires of you is to do justly, it's to love mercy, it's to walk humbly with your God. Paul says, I've been given a trust. 
And the one demand on my life is to be faithful to it. I cannot bunt when I should take a full swing with the gospel. I cannot water down the word of God when I know within the word of God is inherent power of God. I cannot come up to a pulpit and tell stories and anecdotes when I know the power is in the word. And the trust that's been given to me in ordination vows that I took many years ago is to be faithful to the gospel. No matter who my audience may be. Whether I'm at a memorial service or preaching to people in a park or at a family dinner, I have been given a trust. And so have you. The church guards the treasure of the gospel. I read a letter that was submitted to uh, a prominent theologian, William Lane Craig, about a year ago. A man writing from Switzerland. He said, Dr. Craig, my church is corrupt and bankrupt. My pastor no longer believes in the Bible. My pastor no longer believes in the historic Christian faith. In fact, from the pulpit, he mocks historic Christianity. This is a church that I have invested my life in. I have served in, I have prayed for, I have pleaded with the leadership. They deny pretty much every essential doctrine of the historic Christian faith. What do I do now? Where do I go? My pastor doesn't even believe the Bible anymore. This was written from a man a year ago who lives in Switzerland. His church no longer believes in the scripture, denies the gospel. What do you do now? Some years ago, I heard a woman call an apologetics program. It was Greg Kokel. And the woman said, my church has become seeker-sensitive, is the way she put it. She said, from the pulpit, they don't really preach the word of God anymore. There's a lot of stories and entertainment a lot of, lots directed at, at the unbeliever and the unchurched. And she, she basically said, I'm starving for the word of God. But I do believe, she said, I can be a change agent in my church. And so I'm praying for the leadership and I'm trying to approach them to plead with them to give us the meat instead of the milk. And so Greg said, well, let me ask you a question. So you're basically seeing yourself as a missionary to your own church and to your own leadership. Let me ask you a question. Are you supposed to be equipping your leadership or are they supposed to be equipping you? Should you be a missionary to your church or should they be equipping you to be a missionary to the world? Look, I understand the dilemma, especially if you've been in a place a long time and you've kind of watched it, you know, go off. What do you do? It's a difficult question and there's a lot of factors in it. And Greg wisely responded this way. He said, look, there's nothing wrong with churches being seeker-sensitive. Every church should be seeker-sensitive. If, if a seeker comes through these doors, what will we do? We'll love them. We'll preach the gospel to them. We want them to come to Christ. We did the Harvest Fest because we are sensitive to seekers. But he said the problem is not seeker-sensitivity. The problem is seeker-centeredness. 
He said when churches embrace this, they become not seeker-sensitive, but seeker-centered in that they do everything for the seeker. And if you as a Christian say, Pastor, please preach the word of God, I want to grow, they say to you, oh, you need to get over that. Because we're all here so the seeker can feel comfortable. (laughs) Well, wait a minute. Usually when the church gathers on a Sunday morning, 95% of us who come through the doors already know Christ. Or we already know the gospel of Jesus Christ. What do we need now? We need meat, not milk. We can have other contexts for the basics class and Bible studies for that. But you guys all know what I'm saying. The church has been given a stewardship. And the one thing that we need to do is to be found faithful. The overseer, Titus 1.7, must be above reproach as God's steward. He goes on, Titus 1.9, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching that he may be able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it. The NIV says, Titus 1.9, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. The early church, Paul had to write a lot of letters to the early church because they were compromising the gospel, because the gospel was being watered down. We have a stewardship. 1 Peter 4.10 says, As each one has received a special gift, employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. 1 Peter 4.10. Look at verse 3. But to me, says Paul, it's a very small thing that I should be examined by you or by any, uh, any human court. The super apostles, so-called, in the Corinthian congregation were mocking Paul. They said he is weak. They said he's not a good speaker. They said he lacks courage. They they were firing arrows at poor Paul all the time. And if it were me, it's hard to take criticism for any of us. But the Apostle Paul says it's a very small thing that I'm examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. Wow. Paul contrasts his attitude to that of the Corinthians. They lived and died with human judgments. Wilson says, this does not mean that Paul was not hurt by their criticism, but he was not moved by it. Brothers and sisters, we live in an age today where criticism, critical attitudes, whether it's magazines, radio programs, uh, television programs, you name it, are all built around critical attitudes and criticism of people. I remember one time I was, uh, I think I was getting my hair cut and the, the lady had a program, it was in the morning, and it was these people, and all they did was talk about the latest gossip. And then the next story is, so you wouldn't believe this, so-and-so was found on the beach with so-and-so in a bathing suit that they shouldn't have been wearing because they're not really in shape right now. And, oh, look at these pictures. And, oh, did you hear the latest about this? And then the people in the audience are like, whoop, 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 whoop. And I'm I'm like, what's with the whoop, whoop? And what's this? And it was like seven stories in a row. Basically, trying to destroy people's reputation. And then, oh, you want, and then the next one, and, and wait, we're going to take a commercial break, but next is this one. And they show a picture of somebody who, you know. <laughs> whoop, whoop. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm watching this thinking, 
is this what people do who don't have jobs during the day? No wonder our society is so messed up. But then I started thinking about how well I do with criticism. Have you ever uh, read an article on the internet and you're just curious about people's comments? You know, social media has created this whole world now where everybody can make comments on just about anything. So you can read an article on something and then you say, there's 172 comments on this and so-and-so said, thumbs down and so-and-so, well, and so-and-so, yeah. And, and everybody's got, and then, have you ever watched people going back and forth on social media in the comment section? Oh, you don't know what you're talking about. You're out to lunch, and you went with, let me tell you something else. And, blah, 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 blah. And, they, and you get kind of engaged, and you're like, wow, look at these people fight. This is like a cat fight online. This is. But it's okay if you're removed from it, if it has nothing to do with you. But have you ever had a situation where you were the subject matter? Oh, it changes things. There was a pastor in Texas. He said uh, he was watching a program, I think it was a television program, and they were talking about, you know, how this particular pastor in Texas, you know, he, here, here's how he comes across against this particular lifestyle, and I think you know what I'm talking about. And so he was like, wow, boy, they're painting this guy terribly. And then he said a little, the program went a little bit more, and it was him. That's, this is how they were painting him. And he was like, whoa. You see, it's one thing to be in the stands when someone else is taking the punches and bleeding. And you, you can make some comments like, you know, they should really fix that. They should really repair that. But it's another thing when you're taking the shots in the ring. And that was Paul. He had planted the church, brought the gospel to Corinth. Not an easy place to preach or to plant a church. And what did he get for it? A bunch of people being hypercritical. And so Paul says, I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. By the way, verse 4 does not eliminate heart-searching self-scrutiny to be more effective in service, but it anticipates that the Lord's verdict on that day is all that really matters. And Paul says, look, I, my conscience is clear, but that doesn't acquit me just because I have a clear conscience and I can sleep at night. What really matters is what the Lord will say of my work on that day. Even if I feel like I'm okay, I can convince myself, but what really matters is what the Lord will say on that day. Therefore, in light of this, Corinthian church, or Coronites as it were, do not go, passing go on passing judgment, verse 5, before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will, bring, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose, here's a scary verse, the motives of men's hearts. And then, here's the good news, each man's praise, literally speaks of commendation or applause, will come to him from God. Paul is not saying not to judge because in the next chapter he's going to say he judged a man already in the church who had committed terrible sexual sin. But Paul's saying don't jump to conclusions about the work of the ministry and think that you know everybody's motives because you don't. The Lord will work that out. And then each man's praise 
will come to him from God. And as we talked about last time, we want to hear well done, good and faithful servant. Now these things, verse 6, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that in us you might learn not to exceed or go beyond what is written. Very important that you mark that. We can't exceed what is written. What we know from God is what is written. In order that no one of you might become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. Brethren, I'm applying these images to you of farming and architecture and under rowers and stewards because I want you to anchor your judgments in the word. Don't go beyond what is written because that's really all we have. For who regards you as superior, verse 7, ESV, who sees anything different in you? And what do you have that you did not receive? But if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Do you know that your very breath right now is a gift from God? He holds your life breath in his hands. But we live in a world where arrogant displays of I'm all that and a bag of chips is rampant. And there's, there's some of that that appeals to us, right? Some arrogance, some self-confidence that we see can be attractive. And I'll let you work out, you know, how you how you measure all of that. We want to have a good amount of confidence, but we don't want to be overconfident. We don't want to be arrogant. We want to have our confidence in the Lord. How do we find that balance? I think a lot of it, in fact, I think all of it has to do with your identity in Christ. Here's a a commentary by Um, and he comments on this whole evaluation thing, how people evaluate. He goes, none of us is immune. Everybody's a critic. We evaluate athletes, coaches, films, food, restaurants, news anchors. We can watch a news report or video and be swayed by comments in the section below as I described. We talk to friends about what other friends post on social media profiles. There are those that we look up to and those that we look down on. We are also prone to evaluating ourselves and paradoxically holding hold intention and over-inflated evaluation of ourselves and a gnawing suspicion that we don't measure up in the eyes of others. Evaluation is brutally cynical. We evaluate and overanalyze others, but the scrutiny to which we subject others is not something we ourselves can bear. We can end up being paralyzed by other people's judgments of us. Your life is not about being defined by snapshots or sound bites. It is about a picture of God's grace poured out to us in Jesus Christ. Think about it. Think about how many of our young people are living and dying with criticism on social media. Think about how many of us live and die if a friend has an issue with one area of our lives. Or we made a statement, and maybe that statement was based upon biblical truth, but we can't handle the fallout of it because somebody's mad at us. Look, this is so much of the human dilemma, and I think especially in today's day and age that we have to get over, but it's hard to get over it because it's our humanity. 
I think all of us want to be okay with people around us. But Paul is basically saying, look, you guys are doing all this evaluating. You live and die with evaluations. You live and die with when someone speaks, how impressed you are with their philosophical rhetoric. But you've missed the substance of who people are. We live, our world is a theater of God's common grace. Humans are made in the image of God. How easily we can push them aside. How easily, look, we can do this, we can look at an unbeliever and we can easily dismiss them though common grace has been poured out on them. The sun shines on the righteous and the unrighteous. They are a person we want to to, uh, lead to Christ. We want to pray for them. But we can so easily dismiss people almost as if it is nothing. And we can do that even with those who we're supposed to love the best. This is our world. And Paul, when he admonishes the Corinthian church, is saying, this is not how you live. If your existence is defined by this garbage, you need to rethink your whole worldview. Because that is not life. We have young people committing suicide based upon the reaction they get on their posts. Or how their friends see them in these kinds of channels and lanes. You guys know what I'm saying. And Paul's saying, look, this has to stop. We cannot be this way and be spiritual. This is not true biblical love, which we'll read about in 1 Corinthians 13. Paul, in essence, is saying, what makes you think that you're all that? And a side of fries. (laughs) I just added that. I just made that up. Do you guys like that more than a bag of chips? I don't don't even know where the bag of chips thing came from. That could be it. I didn't have my donut. That's the problem. So what we really need is a humble self-evaluation of ourselves and others. And I know some of you who are here today, you know, maybe you're thinking to yourself, man, all I do is beat myself up. I don't have some vaunted uh, self-evaluation. I live with trying to deal with who I am. I understand that. Some years ago, someone said to me, Michael, you need to give yourself the same grace that you preach to others. Because we can be hard on ourselves, right? When we don't hit the standards that we think we should. But in everything in my life, if I can see it as a gift from God's hand, it will really change my perspective. If I can say, Jesus, you are my foundation, and every gift that I have is from you, it will bring an automatic humility to my life and to your life. The meek man is not a human mouse, afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority. Rather, he may be in his moral life as bold as a lion, as strong as Samson. But he has stopped being fooled about himself. This is A.W. Tozer. He's accepted God's estimate of his own life. He knows he is weak and helpless, as God declared him to be. But paradoxically, he knows that at the same time, he is in the sight of God 
of more importance than angels. In himself, nothing. In God, everything. This is his motto, close quote. Or as John the Baptist put it, a man can receive nothing unless it had been first given to him from heaven. He must increase. I must decrease. And there's a beautiful life in the upside-down kingdom that when you die to self and you decrease and he increases, you're going to see fruit in your life start to blossom everywhere. Because when you put God first and others first, your life takes on rich meaning. Now Paul's going to use some sarcasm and irony as we wind down. And sarcasm and irony is a good tool because sometimes it can make a point stronger than anything else. So this is sarcasm and irony meant to, made a po- meant to make a point. Keep in mind, the guy writing it is the guy who planted the church, led them to Christ, taught them for a year and a half. And here's what he says. You're already filled, verse 8. You have all you want, ESV. You've already become rich. You've become kings without us. And I would indeed that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. You've passed us up. You guys got everything and we got nothing. You know, I think we've all had maybe moments with our children where this has been a conversation. You know, I'm 18 now, Dad. I, I know everything. <laughs> you know. And, and you almost feel like you have to kind of remind them, you know, I changed your diaper, boy. <laughs> you know. When you were crying, there were times when I thought about taking you out of the world because I brought you into it. <laughs> But, <laughs> you know, you can go back, but sometimes we get to a point in our, our maturation process where we think we've arrived, and then we get a little bit older and we go, oh, I don't know as much as I, my dad, my mom's smarter than they were 10 years ago. This is the natural thing. This is what the Corinthians were doing spiritually with Paul. They thought they had far surpassed Paul. I mean, we've been Christians for four or five years now, Paul. We know you're an apostle and all that, but uh, we know you got direct revelation from Jesus and all, but, you know, we've been studying the Bible. I, I got a small group Bible study that meets twice a month. I've worked out Calvinism and Arminianism. I, I've worked out eschatology. I've worked this all out. I know these debates have been going on for 2,000 years, but I think I... I've got it handled. Been a Christian for two and a half years. <laughs> so Paul wants to put them in their place, and he says, I think God 9 has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we've become a spectacle to the world, get this, both to angels and to men. See the word spectacle there in the New American Standard? It's theatron in Greek. It's where we get the word theater. It is that we've become almost like the world looks at us as though they were looking at a theater or a television program, but in the ancient world, the theater is the Colosseum. And what happened in Rome is this. Christians were taken, persecuted, brought to the Colosseum to fight the lions or to have some sort of public spectacle happen where they would be killed for the entertainment of the Roman world. Those of you who have watched the movie Gladiator, 
have gotten a little taste of what that is really about. And Paul says, that's who we are. You guys are all that, but let me tell you who we are. This is what God has done. When a Roman general won a major victory, it was celebrated by what was called a triumph. The general would enter the city in great military splendor, leading his officers and troops. Behind those would come a group of prisoners in chains, with the conquered king and his officers prominently displayed for all to see in mock. The prisoners were under the sentence of death. They would be taken to the arena to fight wild beasts. That is the spectacle to which Paul refers. In the spiritual warfare he was fighting, he was considered to be that sort of captive, that sort of conquered prisoner condemned to death. As James Moffat translate, translates it, God means us apostles to come in the very end like doomed gladiators into the arena. Why, you say, does Paul speak this way? To straighten out the Corinthians on their attitude about the church. To show them that they're viewing things the wrong way. We are fools for Christ's sake, ten, but you are prudent in Christ. More sarcasm and irony. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished. We were without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty, eleven and are poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless. The word homeless does not mean that Paul lacked a roof over his head, but it implies that he wandered about without a fixed abode. You have all you want. We are in want. We toil. We do work to the point of exhaustion, is the word in verse 12, working with our hands. Manual labor in the Greek mind was a joke. They made fun of it. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. Paul says we're going through these issues and we're hanging on. When we are slandered, when we have evil deeds or motives ascribed to us, we try to conciliate, we answer kindly. We've become as the scum of the world, the dregs, the off-scouring, New King James, the refuse of all things until now. To answer a critic kindly, was seen as weakness in the Greek mind. If you were in a debate and you answered someone kindly, they thought, ah, oh, you're, you're weak. You're feeble. You need to fire back. You need to show your strength. But Paul says this is not how we win people. Because our master from the cross, when he was being reviled, he did not revile in return. When be, he was being mocked, you know, he had the power from the cross to say, you know what, I'm done with all of you. Father, burn this whole world. How dare they mock the living God who became flesh? If you had that power at your fingertips, what would you do? The first pipsqueak that came by mocking you as you hung on the cross. <laughs> you who said you could rebuild the temple? I'd say, oh well, Yeah. <laughs> Here's where I imagine having x-ray vision from the cross. <laughs> what happened to old so-and-so? Well, but that's not God's way. I counted dollars while God counted crosses. I counted gains while he counted losses. I counted my worth, my things gained and stored. He sized me up by the scars that I bore. I counted honors and sought degrees. He counted the hours I spent on my knees. I never knew until one day 
by the grove. How vain are the things that we spend life to save. The father allowed the son to suffer the sentence of death as a spectacle to the world. And God put his love on display at the cross, that while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. Let me ask you, what's more powerful? If Jesus would have said, you all aren't worth it, Father, send the fury of flames now. But no, you and I are here because we look back to a cross and we say, Lord, I don't know why you did it. I don't know why you love me this way. I don't know why you love others this way. But you demonstrated your love on the cross in this, that while I was yet in rebellion to you, you died there. See, the world, friends, please hear what I'm going to say. The world expects the fight. They expect you to respond the way everybody else does. And when you don't, they all of a sudden begin to ask some deeper questions about who it is that you serve and who you know and what is different in your life than everybody else. When you bless instead of reviling. When you love instead of wounding. Look, it's hard. The only way it can happen is to be filled with the Spirit. Amen? But when it happens, the world begins to change. It's what changed me. The love of Christ compels me. Now we're going to uh, have a time of communion. And uh, I would ask you as we come to the Lord's table, to just, just take a deep breath and reflect a little bit on God's word. And here's some ways to respond. Lord, I have said that you are my foundation, but I've really been trusting in other foundations, and I want that to change. Lord, if I'm an under rower and a steward of this precious message, and of all that you've put in my life, I want to steward it well. And maybe for you, you could say, you know what, Lord? I have been largely failing. I have not taken good care of what you've entrusted to me. And today, I'm going to change. Today, I'm going to build on the right foundation, and I'm going to build wisely, and I want to serve you. This is the purpose of us gathering. This is the purpose of the Word of God, that I might not just read the verses, but that I might be changed. Amen? And I know, I look around this room, and I see stories of transformation and change all around this room. It's beautiful. It's awesome. And there's more good stuff to come. But it's all going to become about what kind of hearer am I, what kind of hearer are you? What am I going to do with the truth that I've been given? The trust, the blessings. If you don't know Christ, you've got to start with that foundation because if you're not a Christian, everything I'm saying to you, you're not building on the right foundation to begin with. So if you don't know Jesus, the first step to take is to say, Lord Jesus, thank you for coming and in God's theater and dying on that cross to put your love on display. I want to know that love. Would you just pray with me for a second? If, if this is you, You've not met Christ. You don't know, God forbid, if you died tonight, you would be in heaven. You don't know what it means to be saved by grace right now. It's a gift. You just got to receive it right now, something like this. Lord Jesus, pray it if it's you. Come into my life. 
Thank you that you came to rescue me. Thank you that you died on that cross for my sins. I believe in your death on the cross. I believe in your resurrection from the dead. I repent of my sin and I put my trust in you. Please forgive me. Thank you that Jesus took the penalty, the punishment for me. I trust in you as my Lord and Savior. I want to know you, Lord. Save me. If you've been a prodigal and maybe the, your foundation's been really shaky because you, you kind of departed from the one strong foundation, just do a little business with the Father right now. Just say, Lord, I, I'm sorry. I want to come home. I want to I build again with the right foundation and the right materials. Thank you that you're so patient. Help me to start again today. And Lord, for this precious congregation, as we all come to your table and we think about the great sacrifice that you made with all that power at your disposal, what you did for us, we're just so grateful. We're humbled by your love and your goodness. And I pray that as these elements come around and we reflect on the cross, your payment for our sins, your triumph over principalities and powers, I just pray that it would encourage our own lives and walk with you. In Jesus' name.